Well, as you see this morning, we're again back here in our study in uh, John chapter 8. The Lord Jesus Christ makes this most astounding statement in verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in, the, walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's the second of the seven great I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has already said back in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Again, here in verse 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Uh, I am the good shepherd. Again, John 10. John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 15, I am the true vine. It is a profound statement. Uh, Again, uh, an unabashed, bold claim that the Lord Jesus Christ makes to deity. To be not just a man, but much more than just a man, the fact that he is God in human flesh. When he makes these great I am statements, it's a a, a reference back to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses said uh, to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Exodus 13, verse 14 And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God cannot define himself. Because if God were to define himself, to define himself, he would limit himself. Because a definition definition is a limitation. So God just simply says, I am who I am. God who is in the beginning. God who is in the end. If you wanted to drop it to a vernacular level for us, I be. I am. That's who I am. Uh, The one from the beginning, the one in the end, the one who's the first, the one who's the last, uh, the one who's the alpha and the omega. I am who I am. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, again, it's a claim to deity. It's a, a claim that he is identifying himself with the I am of the Old Testament. So when men in the context of his declaration heard these words, I am, they, without mistake, understood that he was making that very claim to deity. And it's a claim that has to be dealt with. It's a claim that can't just be made and then walked away from, left lying there. Nor is it a claim that you can attribute, as many want to do, to place Jesus in some kind of a category as a quote-unquote good teacher or a religious example or a moral man who meant well can't do that with that kind of a statement because if the claim is not true then he's either a madman or a devil again the i am statements of christ are so profound they demand a response from you i am the light of the world i am the bread of life i am the light of the world i am the good shepherd i am the resurrection i am the way the truth and the life and then he goes on and says no one comes to the father but through me Exclusive claims to deity that cannot be dismissed, but claims that have to be evaluated, must be evaluated, and then responded to. And claims that have been through the years repeatedly attacked by men because simply the truth is deep down within their heart, they know they're true. But in their sinfulness, they try to suppress that truth and unrighteousness, ignoring that very truth. Therefore, the sad reality is many men will make the eternal mistake of passing out of existence without having a saving knowledge of the one who is the light of the world.
And the only appropriate response to this one who says, I am the light of the world, is to fall down before him, to repent of your sin, to worship him, to cry out for mercy and follow him with the entirety of your life. Now, you'll remember last week, if uh, you were with us, the story that introduces the top of chapter 8 in John's Gospel is the story of the woman taken in adultery. And we had a long discussion over whether or not that portion of Scripture from John 7, verse 53 to eight eleven was indeed a part of the original part of uh, John's Gospel. I told you there are a number of scholars who think it's an addition to John's uh, Gospel, that it's not a part of the original text, therefore it shouldn't be there. And I gave you a number of reasons from these scholars, reasons for its exclusion, reasons why it should be omitted. I told you that most of the early manuscripts of, the, of John's Gospel or versions, translations of early manuscripts of John's Gospel omit the narrative and move right from John 7, verse 52, right into chapter 8, verse 12. So many scholars believe that the story of the woman taken in adultery really interflows or uh, 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 interrupts the flow of John's gospel. Therefore, many of uh, the commentators, uh, Bible teachers, etc., because of that controversy, they'll take that portion out. They'll remove it from their commentaries. They won't preach on it. They won't deal with it whatsoever because they don't see it as part of the original text, so they don't see it as inspired scripture. But then I told you there are many scholars on the other side, and again, good men on both sides of the argument, who make a case for its inclusion. Uh, that we should keep the text. In fact, many would say we should keep it in the text right in the place that it finds itself here in uh, John's Gospel because they would say it really fits a pattern that John uh, has, uses in the opening chapters where he brings forth a story and then he puts forth a, a teaching based on that story. He's done that thing repeatedly back in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, then here again in chapter 8. And then there are some who think, well, perhaps the story doesn't belong here. These verses don't belong here. But this uh, woman who is caught in adultery is a historically reliable story. Therefore, they would argue for its inclusion because it's an actual uh, historical event in the life of Christ. And they would argue that the text doesn't violate any other scriptural teachings. The story is true to the nature and the character of Christ in every point in accordance to his perfect holiness, his wisdom, his deep compassion. Uh, therefore, they would say we need to keep it. We need to address the issues that are in the text that the text brings forward. And they would also argue, this group of people would argue that, you know, again, it may not have been here in the original, but it really fits well here because it fits into the story where the religious leaders of Israel have tried to arrest Jesus at the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, but they've not been able to do that. So they're going to devise a plan, a very wicked plan, uh, to entrap the sinless Son of God with the law of God, to trap the sinless Son of God with God's most holy, perfect word. And I told you the great evil of the story, as great as the evil is of the woman in her adulterous uh, uh, sexual involvement and in sin, the greatest evil in the entire story is what these so-called religious leaders are doing. That's where the real evil lies, is they're using this woman, and more likely they've set up a trap for her uh, to enter into sin, and trying to enter her into or taking her into sin, they're trying to set up a trap to really trap the person of the Lord Jesus, trying to bring the law to, again, try to convict the holy and the righteous one. So the great wickedness of all wickedness is these religious leaders, and it is unspeakable level of wickedness. 
The fact, again, that they have conspired against this woman not only shows their disregard for God's law, but their contempt for human life because they have created a scenario in this evil conspiracy that could potentially cost this woman her very life. So again, there are many who would see this story of the woman taking adultery to fit very well into the flow of John's gospel at this point. Christ has just made a statement right after this story. He's made a statement about being the light of the world, and again, it's pointing to him in the contrast to the uh, dark, black, uh, dealing the sinfulness of the religious leaders. So here's Christ in the purity and the brightness of the person of Christ offering himself uh, again against the backdrop of the dark and wicked world under the shadow of sin as men are trapped in spiritual blindness and the snare of immorality and idolatry and all the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And here Christ steps onto the scene and presents himself as who he is. Now, last week, if uh, you're with us, we chose to work our way through the text. And, and through that text, we saw the great wisdom of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who who uh, sets the woman's accusers to flight, who protects the law and actually protects the woman from harm, uh, exposing the sin of her accusers. And, and we saw how the problem of the relationship between sinners and a holy God is ultimately dealt with, where both justice and mercy are harmonized in the punishment of sin, not in the punishment of the transgressor, but in the punishment or through the punishment of the substitute of the dear Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God made sin. Right, The one who knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Right? So as the perfect substitute, the God-man, he bears the punishment of our sin. He places himself in the story in the position of being her substitute. As he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Right? He is the substitute through whom God's perfect justice is meted out upon Calvary's cross through the body of him, the ultimate Savior. The one who has again come into this world not to condemn the world, but the one who's come into this world to save men's lives, that men would not perish, but that men might have eternal life. Again, it's a wonderful story, a wonderful picture uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ where God's divine mercy uh, and his uh, justice meet uh, for those who place their faith in Christ and in him alone. They pass out of condemnation are given as a a gift of God's grace, the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, if you missed last week, I think you would be encouraged by listening to that sermon, a tremendous story, uh, a tremendous portion of Scripture, again, pointing us to Christ. And as I told you last time, a portion of Scripture that God in his wisdom, whether or not it belongs here or someplace else, he's preserved, right? He's kept it so that we might have an opportunity to consider it because it points us to Christ. Now, as we come to our verses this morning... After saying that, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to treat the text from 753 through 811 as though it is historically accurate, but more than likely was probably not part of John's original text. If you look at the end of chapter 7, verse 52, it says, Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Then look at verse 53. Then everyone went to his home. Chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Now, if everybody went to his home, whom is he speaking to? Right, so I'm, I'm going to take it that, that uh, um, in taking that verse 53 out and saying it really starts right back in here. And where is he speaking? Again, he's still in Jerusalem when we come to chapter 8, verse 12. 
He's in Jerusalem. He's at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's still in the temple teaching. That's what he says in uh, the text affirms in verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasure as he taught in the temple. So in the context of the story, in the context at the end of chapter 7, uh, you might remember there's a controversy, a division over the person of Jesus. Who is he? Some think he's the Christ. Others think he's a deceiver. The religious leaders of Israel, they want to arrest him, and ultimately they want to kill him. Now, you might remember when we talked about the feast proper, we said during that feast the Jews performed a ceremony where the priests went to the pool of Siloam and drew, drew water from that source with a golden pitcher and a returned to the temple where the water was poured out in the base of the altar of sacrifice. It was a ceremony that commemorated God's provision for water from the rock that sustained Israel during its wilderness wanderings. That's in part why we read Psalm 95, because it refers to that story. The people who accompanied the priest, it would be a tremendous time of joy and celebration. They would be singing and chanting, and one of the verses they would use was Isaiah 12 and 3, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Another was Psalm 114, verse 7, A tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. So again, the use of these psalms in this celebration show again the ceremony was a remembrance of God's provision for the people of Israel during their time of wilderness wandering. And again, it also, part of the Feast of Tabernacles, as I told you before, points forward to the spiritual water that men will draw from God in the day of God's future visitation. But I also told you that in connection with the ceremony, uh, in connection with that ceremony, and perhaps right at that very moment when the high priest is pouring out that water there on the last day of the feast, maybe that's exactly when Jesus in John 7, verse 37 said, cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So he is claiming identity with that ceremony, that part of the ceremony. In fact, he's claiming to be, in fact, the fulfillment of that ceremony. Now, I told you not only was there this water ceremony, but there was also a, a, a nightly counterpart. It was a candle lighting ceremony. And the candle lighting ceremony took place in the court of uh, women where Jesus is speaking here in our, in our text. At sunset, at sunset in the court of the temple, there were four huge candle abras that were lit, and that, that light gave up a, a tremendous amount of light to the nighttime sky, almost like a searchlight, some would say. So brilliant was the light that came from these huge candle abras. One ancient Jewish source declared there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. So these aren't just little candles off in the corner like you might have in your room in your dorm or something like that. These are bright lights that everybody can see. And again, that ceremony, that part of the ceremony was a reminder again of the pillar of fire in the cloud, which God guided and accompanied Israel during, again, its 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And again, it's against that portion of the ceremony that Jesus makes this stunning announcement, I am the light of the world. Now that cloud, you might remember, when it appeared, uh, it appeared first when Israel left Egypt. And it was that cloud that stood between the nation of Israel and the uh, approaching, chasing uh, armies of the Egyptians. And it stood between them and the pursuing army of the Egyptians the night before they crossed into the Red Sea, and it protected the nation of Israel or the Jewish people from being attacked. And later it was that very same cloud that guided them during their wilderness wanderings. It was that very same cloud that would spread out over them by night, give them shade 
uh, would spread out over them and gave them shade by day, and that light gave them warmth at night. And again, this whole ceremony is a clear reference to this uh, issue of this lighting ceremony in the context of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And again, in the context of Jesus saying these words, he's making reference to that very truth, that very reality in the history of Israel. And again, note what he says. Note his exact words. He says, I am the light. Right? I am the light of the world. He didn't say he was a light. He didn't say, I'm a, I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher, I'm a priest, I'm a religious individual, a religious fellow. He didn't say that. Didn't say, I am a light, but he said, I am the light. I am the light of the world. And again, when he uses the I am, it's the tetragrammaton. It's that statement, again, that makes that claim that he is God. And he is making a claim without equivocation. He's making a claim to be both God and to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Now, if you've been reading John uh, carefully and noticing, you will have already uh, noticed that John has referenced three issues already with uh, Israel's wilderness wanderings. In chapter 6, Jesus is the manna in the wilderness, right, that provided for the nation's hunger, for people's hunger. John chapter 7, again, he's the water from the rock, uh, again, providing thirst for, uh, uh, satisfaction of thirst for uh, God's people. And then here, again, chapter 8, he's making this claim that he's the pillar of fire, right, providing protection and guidance, presence with God's people. So all three of these uh, issues, the manna, the, the water, the, the fire, uh, again, is a, a reference to the fact that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior that provides people what they need, his people. He provides them what they need while they're traveling through the wilderness, if you will, on the way to the promised land. That's what he was doing for the nation of Israel, and that's what he does for his people even this day. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, again, unmistakably, he's making a claim to be God and making a claim to be the Messiah. Because, again, the Jews would have recognized his statement. The Jews would have recognized that pillar of cloud and fire from an Old Testament context. They would have recognized that as being God himself, the Lord himself. Take your Bible. We're going to do a little bit of turning here. Take your Bible and go back. So put a mark so you can find your way back here to John eventually. But... Go back to the book of Exodus. Go back to Exodus 13, 21. Exodus 13, Exodus 13, 21 says, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. Who's going before them? Jehovah, right? The Lord was going before them. In a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Drop down to verse 19 of chapter 14. Fourteen, verse 19, And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood 
behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with darkness. Yet it gave light at night, thus the one did not come near the other all night. Right, so the cloud represents the presence of God himself. The presence of God himself with the people, and the people realize, recognize that. Now again, I also realize that the people of Israel are out in the wilderness, and uh, they're in a day where there's no artificial light, so when it's dark outside, it's dark outside, right? No street lamps, no, no lamps from your uh, uh, cell phone, uh, nothing like that, right? I mean, it's dark. So again, they're out in the wilderness, they're out in the darkness, and here's this light, right? This light that gives off the, the light that is obvious, that is striking, that is in great contrast to the darkness all around them. And again, a constant reminder of God's presence. So much so that God's people were never able to forget that fact that God was with them, that God went with them uh, wherever they uh, w- uh, wandered. His presence overshadowed them and all that they did. Exodus 16.10, you don't have to turn there, but it says, The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 33.9, And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing in the entrance, entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Exodus 40.34, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For through all their journeys, the clouds of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So again, the cloud is a very present, real demonstration of the presence of God with his people. God who provides for his people. God who protects his people from enemies. And in the context of the story, the Egyptian army, who is, will, in fact, perish as they're trying to pursue uh, uh, Israel. Protection in the wilderness. I mean, again, they're out in the open, in the wilderness, in the desert. So that cloud provides shelter from the hot noonday sun, shelter from the sun. And then at night, if you've ever lived in the desert, the, the temperature drops dramatically, so there's warmth in that pillar of fire for the cold nights. And then that cloud moved, right? That cloud moved and gave direction and guidance to the, to the nation. So in the context of John 8, when Jesus makes that claim, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk, walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Uh, again, it's a tremendous claim to deity, and it's a cr- tremendous claim in the middle of the temple from the the nation of Israel because God's glory had long since departed that nation. But now on that very day, God's glory has appeared again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The glory of God standing in the temple and men are so blinded by their sin, so much in darkness, they can't see the truth of the reality who stands in their presence. The light of the world. Now, light has been long used as a metaphor for God in the Old Testament. Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? Turn over to the book of uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, a familiar portion of Scripture predicting the coming of the Messiah. 
Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah predicts this, verse 2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who lived in the dark land, the light will shine upon them. And then he goes on to describe the Messiah when he comes. Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 42. Another very familiar messianic prophecy, Isaiah 42. This messianic prophecy that comes through the prophet Isaiah concerning the servant of Jehovah. And again, a prophecy about Messiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, or my slave, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, or dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you up or hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, speaking to the Messiah, right? As, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon to those who dwell in darkness and in prison. That's who the Lord's servant is, the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to come out of the world. He's going to be a light to the nations, a light to the world. He's going to give sight to the blind. Go over to chapter 49. Verse 5 of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 5. Again, it's the servant of Jehovah who is being spoken about. Isaiah 49, 5, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore uh, the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light to the goyim, to to the nations, to the peoples. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One. So God the Father says to the Messiah, again, he's going to be the light of the nations. So when Jesus makes that claim, I am the light of the world, again, he's making to the claim unmistakably to be that prophesied Messiah. You don't have to turn there, but listen, Isaiah 60 and 1, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will raise, rise you uh, upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. 
The nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 19, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness of the moon to give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, and neither will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord as an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. In Micah chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the Messiah is spoken of as the son of righteousness with healings in his wings. Look over to the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Again, writing of the ministry of Christ when he is there in Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. Matthew says, Matthew 4, verse 14, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, of Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 16, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has dawned. Speaking of Christ, look over in Luke. Luke chapter 1. Zechariah, who's the father of uh, John the Baptist, He has this great prayer of praise to God. Luke chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, verse 76. Verse 76, And you, child, I mean, Zechariah the father, John the Baptist, speaking in the context to his son, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will, be, you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because out of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. Again, he's speaking about the Messiah, whom the John the Baptist, again, is the forerunner. And the Messiah is going to be the light of the world, the sunrise from on high that will visit us, the sun that will shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. That's the Messiah. Turn over just to Luke chapter 2. Again, it's the, the announcement of the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds, Luke 2. And with that announcement, you might remember, there was a magnificent display of what? Light. Right? A magnificent display of God's glory. Luke 2, verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When the parents of Jesus took him as a young infant to the temple, to offer the sacrifice accordance with the law of God. Drop down to verse 25 of that chapter, Luke 2, verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law... Then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, 
Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people. Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 15. It says, He began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read. And a book of the prophet Isaiah was handed him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your sight, in your hearing. Turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. When the Lord Jesus appears to then Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. It came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching uh, Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Right? I mean, this light blinds the Saul of Tarsus, knocks him to the ground, and who is it? Who is this light? It's none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go over to chapter 22. You see it again when there's a retelling of the story. Acts chapter 22, verse 6. Saul's telling this, Paul's telling the story here in Acts 22, verse 6. And it came about that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who art thou, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And all those who were with me beheld the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. He retells the story in Acts chapter 26. Look over there, Acts chapter 26, verse 13. He's speaking to uh, um, the king, and he's saying uh, in, in the context of the fact that he was persecuting Christians, Acts chapter 26, he's before Agrippa. Or Acts chapter 26, verse 13. Acts 26, verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when I had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
uh, me, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 15, and I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here it is, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they might receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by me in faith. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I'm telling you, he's saying a mouthful. Revelation 21, you don't have to turn there. John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Instead of there being a sun and the moon and this new heavens and new earth, the nations won't need that light because the Lamb is there, and He is that lamp. He is that light. The lamp, again, the Lamb identified in Revelation 22, verse 5, is the Lord God. One, First John 1 and 5, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and him that, in him there's no darkness at all. So again, John, uh, Jesus, when he makes this statement in John chapter 8, he's making a tremendous, tremendous claim. In the context, those who heard it understood very clearly what he's saying. And you might remember that this is not the first reference to light. John actually began his gospel with the reference to the fact that the Messiah is the light of the world. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, uh, he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9, John 1, verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So again, right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John identifies the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as light, light and life. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in what? Darkness. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John also said in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, the light is coming to the world, and men love the darkness. Men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. I mean, again, we live in a dark world, right? Is that a newsflash to anybody? Have you noticed it's dark out there? Have you noticed it's perhaps getting even darker? We live in a dark world, a world full of sin. People desperately looking for the truth and looking at in all the wrong places, they'll never find it because of their spiritual blindness. They'll never find what they're looking for for the answers to their life because they've already rejected the light that God has given, the light that has come. And they've rejected their only hope, that being the light of the world, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think things are going to get better, you're living in some kind of a, a delusion. Men hate the light. The light is coming to the world, and men love darkness. And again, the Bible constantly describes sinners as those who walk in darkness. 
Proverbs 2 and 13. Those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not uh, know what they, uh, over what they stumble. Isaiah 5 and 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. I mean, that's the world we live in today. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Of the unbeliever, those who reject the truth of the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, and isn't the gospel veiled to a lot of the world today? They don't see it. Can't see it. Won't see it. Even if our gospel it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing and whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Of the unbeliever, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and 8, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And the result of that hardness, the result of that ignorance, Ecclesiastes 2.14 says the unbeliever, unbeliever walks in darkness. John 12, verse 35, he who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. I certainly hope you're not following anybody in this world. Save the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because the world has absolutely no idea where they're going. So it's into this dark, sin-cursed world that Jesus Christ comes. Again, John 1 and 5, the light that shines into the darkness, the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, John 1 and 9. So when Jesus says in John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, he is declaring the fact that he is God of very God, and he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one, the Messiah. And he is offering with that statement men who dwell in darkness, men who are hopelessly lost in that dark world of their own sin and their own corruption, he is offering to them hope. He is offering to them help. He's offering to them his presence, his protection, his guidance. John 12 and 46, I've come as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And Christ is offering to those through repentance and faith in himself an opportunity to be rescued from the domain of darkness, to be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1 and 13. He's offering men an opportunity to become sons of the light and sons of the day and no longer of the night or darkness, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 5. He's offering men who, through repentance and faith in him, an opportunity to turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God to receive forgiveness of sin as an inheritance amongst those who have been sanctified by faith in God. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. It's this great God, this kind God, this compassionate God who's filling the temple, and in his great kindness, he's calling men out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2 and 9. But as one writer says, 
One would think that sinners hopelessly lost in the darkness would flock to the light, yet in a strange paradox, people love the very darkness that ensnares them. Like a dying man who cherishes his deadly disease, they cherish the sin that produces spiritual and eternal death. Again, John 3 and 19, Jesus explained, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. So when Jesus makes this statement, again, in the context of the Feast of the Tabernacles, when he says, I am the light of the world, he's again saying he's mankind's only hope. Mankind's only help. Mankind's only guide in this life to help deal with the issue of our sin. Our only hope to guide us out of darkness that, come, that has come into this world because of mankind's rebellion. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again, look what it says. It doesn't say the light should be just admired. Oh, that's very pretty. Look how it glows on and it makes the whole city. No, he doesn't say that. He says the light shouldn't be just admired. He said it shouldn't be just looked at, but it has to be what? Followed. The nation of Israel, when the cloud departed, were to get up and to follow that cloud. They weren't just to say, well, see ya. No, they followed that light. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because Jesus is the only one who knows the way out of darkness. Jesus is the only one who knows the way out of sin and sadness and sorrow. And again, just like the nation of Israel followed that pillar of uh, that cloud and that pillar of fire in the wilderness, Jesus calls men today to follow him. If you want his presence. If you want his protection, if you want his provision. Now make sure that you're back to John chapter 8. Here we are, Jesus is in the temple. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Again, unmistakably, it's a claim to deity. And again, a claim that everyone in the context who heard him make that statement clearly understood. He's going to say very much along the same lines, the very same thing in John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, I am the light of the world. And he says, he who follows me. Now, now, that word it could, could be followed just kind of in a general sense, like the crowds followed Jesus, but that's really not the context here. Cloud moved, Israel followed. That's the idea. So really, when Jesus says, he who follows me, right? He, he's really saying, more specifically, he, he was my disciple, my true disciple, a true follower. So he says, he who follows me, it really is a call to absolute allegiance to him. Again, it's a call to forsake all, to take up your cross and follow him. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Again, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to faith in him, to come to him as the Messiah, to come out from that darkness, to come out from the sin-cursed world. And to follow Christ, that call to follow Christ, is a call to trust him as Savior and then to obey him as Lord. 
Because, one, you certainly don't trust, uh, you don't follow anybody you don't trust. You don't follow someone you don't trust, and you can't follow him in the realm of salvation unless he is your Lord and you are obedient to him. Luke 6 and 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It seems to be a pretty simple issue to me, but a lot of theologians, quote-unquote, like to mess it up and make it a pretty difficult hash. Calls you to obedience. It calls you to follow him as Lord because that's who he is. Speaking of Christ, uh, Hebrews 5 and 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He is certainly not the source of eternal salvation to those who don't obey him. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So again, when Jesus makes that claim that he is the light of the world, he's not only speaking truth about himself, but you know what? He's actually speaking truth about us. He knows our heart. He knows the reality of who we are before him. He knows that we're fallen human beings. He knows that our hearts are deceptive and desperately wicked. He knows that apart from him and apart from following him, we're still all part of that evil world, that world that calls evil good and good evil, that substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. He's saying that apart from him, we're all still dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Again, we're part of that darkened world. That world is darkened, their understanding that's excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So again, when Jesus makes that statement, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. He's making a tremendous claim about himself. He's making a tremendous observation about the reality of who we are. And again, he's offering to men himself as mankind's only hope. Mankind's only hope of coming out of the darkness. Because none of the world's religions can offer you any hope. None of the world's religions can offer you any help. None of the world's philosophers can do so either. Because they don't have any true insight. Because they're still in the darkness. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's only Jesus Christ that gives that life. It's only Jesus Christ that gives that light. It's only Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ offers himself not just to the Jews, but to the world. I am the light of the world. Let me tell you again, if you're in this dark world, and you are, and you are listening, I don't know who you listen to predominantly throughout the week, but if you're listening to worldly, secular sources, they have nothing to offer you of any help. They do have, they have nothing to offer you because they still are themselves in darkness. They still are blinded to, their, to the reality of their own sin. You need life. You need the words of life. You need, you need light to shine help and hope into your heart, into your soul, into your mind, so it might be renewed biblically. One, one, I probably have never said this before, but one minute, one moment after you die, politics in this world aren't going to be an issue for you. I guarantee you. Who's the president? Who's not the president? Who's in charge of this? Who's not in charge of that? Who did this? Who did that? It's not going to matter. I understand we're in time. Those things matter to a certain extent in time. But we're called to set our hope where? Our eyes where? Our affection where? Up where Christ is. That's where our help comes from. That's where our hope comes from. The fact that God is the creator. The fact that God is the sovereign. The fact that he rules from his throne. The fact that his plans will never be thwarted. I am the light of the world, not just to the Jews, to everyone. 
One commentator says this, he says, Jesus alone, Jesus Christ alone brings the light of salvation to us in a cursed world. To the darkness of falsehood, he is the light of truth. To the darkness of ignorance, he is the light of wisdom. To the darkness of sin, he is the light of holiness. To the darkness of sorrow, he is the light of joy. To the darkness of death, he is that light of life. Isn't that good? That's who Jesus Christ is. Hope, help, light, life, joy. Don't let this world of darkness and this world of dark people drag you down and rob your joy. God's still on his throne, amen? I read the end of the book. He's coming back. He wins, amen? So again, Jesus is making a very straightforward claim here. A very straightforward claim to being God and the prophesied Messiah. And guess what? The religious leaders understood that. They understood that. And how do I know that? I read the text. Okay? Verse 13. Their response. Their antagonism. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself when your witness is not true. So again, the religious leaders, there's no mistake here. The religious leaders understood exactly the claim that he's making. Jesus never claimed to be God. Don't listen to those kind of people. He claimed to be God everywhere in the text of Scripture. They understood it. They just chose not to believe it, just like a whole lot of people. They chose not to believe the claim that Christ has just made, and it was not based on any evidence that they possessed to the contrary, but based simply on the fact that they chose not to believe. Back in John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus said to them, You are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And again, over and over in this series, I've told you that unbelief is absolutely irrational. Unbelief never has enough proof. Because unbelief is not about a matter of evidence. Unbelief is about hardness of heart. Unbelief is about hardness of heart. Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief, in fact, is the rejection of the truth, the rejection of evidence. We've spoken about this before also, that Jesus performed so many miracles unparalleled in all of human history that no one ever denied his miraculous powers, not even the Pharisees, not even the religious enemies of Christ. To which John 12 and 37 says, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not willing to believe him. John chapter 11 Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. How do we know Jesus is dead in the, or Lazarus is dead in the tomb? He's been in the tomb for four days. He says, open the tomb. They say, don't do it. By now he stinketh, right? Four days of corruption in the tomb. And the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus Christ is an undeniable demonstration of divine power. John 11, verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council and were saying, What are we doing? Listen to the words. What are we going to do? What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. They don't even deny it. Did I tell you that? This man is performing many signs. What are we going to do? Verse 53. So from that day they planned together to kill him. That's the plan. That's unbelief on display. We know nobody can do this but God. He's been raised from the dead. Everybody knows that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. What's the plan? We're going to kill him. That's unbelief on display. Back in John chapter 7, 
Jesus had told these religious rulers, verse 17 of chapter 7, if any man is willing to do his will, in the context it's God's will, if any man is willing to do God's will, he shall know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there's no unrighteousness in him. But the truth is these men were not willing. They weren't willing to believe. They were unwilling and unwilling to do the Father's will. Therefore, they did not and they could not understand the person of Jesus Christ. They weren't willing. Again, John eight thirteen, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, some commentators come and say, well, you know, these guys were just appealing to the Old Testament law and the fact that every legal matter had to be uh, adjudicated by the testimony of more than one witness. You had to have two witnesses. You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So they're just going to refuse to consider the possibility of the claims of Christ that it might be true, and they're going to dismiss his claims on a mere legal technicality. Don't buy that commentary. Because legal technicalities aren't the issue here. Legal technicalities aren't the issue here. It's hardness of heart. It's a willful rejection of the truth because men do not want to believe. Men, rather, would suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, again, unbelief is not grounded on rational evidence. Unbelief is not rational at all because unbelief is a rejection of all evidence. And, by the way, Unbelief is not the position of the so-called sophisticated or educated modern man. Because there are a lot of people who are unsophisticated and just plain dumb who don't believe. It's not your great mind that is causing you not to be able to believe. It's your pride. It's your love of your own sin. And there's nothing new or modern about unbelief. Because people in the first century, they also failed to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like they do in our time. Again, the issue of unbelief always comes down to the hardness of heart. It's a heart issue. It's the unbeliever and their love for their own sin. I think it's the third time I've read it, John 3 and 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does, not, who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's the issue, and I would suggest we might want to be truthful. Instead of continuing to deceive yourself with the lies of your own heart. Well, there's just not enough evidence. That's not true. You love your sin. Be truthful. Well, you can't because you're a liar because you deny the truth. You deny the reality of the evidence. And again, I've told you this a number of times through this series. Unbelief always comes down to the words of Christ. The issue is the words of Christ. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have life have the light of life. Boy, and men hate the words of Christ. I just hate him. They hate him when he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. They hate those words. The world hates Christ when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The world hates Christ when he says, I am the light of the world. The world hates Christ because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, if the religious leaders' rejection of the claims of Christ was just some kind of legal technicality, that Jesus was making a a claim and there's only one witness, and we really don't know if we can count this to be true, Uh, we need more witnesses, we'll take this up some other time. That's not what it says. 
But if they wanted more witnesses, there are plenty available. They could listen to others who could have and could give testimony, truthful testimony to the claims of Christ. For example, you might remember back in chapter 1 and following the claims of John the Baptist. There was the testimony of the twelve. There was the testimony of the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember in John 4. Then there was the entire village of Sychar, John chapter 4. There was Martha's testimony in uh, in John 11. Again, there was all those who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead in in John uh, 11 and 12. Jesus' own works testified to his deity. The scripture testifies to his deity. And above all, the Father comes along and stands as a witness and testifies to his deity, as we'll see here in verses 17 and 18. So the truth is there's no validity to the rejection of Jesus' statement based on some kind of alleged fact that there's only one witness, he's the only witness to verify his claims, we need somebody else. That claim has no validity whatsoever. Because again, unbelief is never interested in evidence. Unbelief, again, will never be convinced no matter how much evidence is produced. Unbelief has its roots in sin, rebellion, a love for sin, and a hatred for the truth. Therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So in the light of the Pharisees' rejection of Christ's testimony, Christ says this, verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So Jesus is going to lay out the reality. He's going to support the the claim by the reality of uh, his divine origin. He's come from heaven and he's ultimately going back to heaven. The fact that the Father has sent him and he's going to return to the Father. Jesus knew the truth because he is the way the truth and the life and he knows that nobody goes to the father but through him he's the only way to eternal life he's the only way to heaven he's the only way to forgiveness of sin he's the only way to peace with god he's the only way to escape the judgment that is coming upon this wicked world of rebellious men and women who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and who have rejected god's offer of mercy through his son the lord jesus christ judgment is coming That's why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to him, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. More than enough evidence to back up the validity of my claims. To be God in the flesh. To be the promised Messiah. Again, he goes on and says, for I know where I came from and where I am going. Again, it's a claim to uh, his heavenly origin. It's exactly what John started with at the beginning of the book. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was prostantheon, right? Face to face with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's the same thing that Jesus said in John 3, 11 through uh, 13. The same thing Jesus said in John 5, 36 and 38. His origin was from heaven. He had been sent from the Father to tell of heavenly things, heavenly realities to the world, but people refused to believe. Why? Because they didn't have the word of God in them. Therefore, they refused to believe the one who had been sent into this world from God himself. 
I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I'm from or where I'm going. Remember, I told you the religious leaders don't know anything about him. They don't even know where he's born. They don't even have, they don't even have enough desire uh, or, uh, to take a walk over to the temple and check the genealogical records. They don't care. They don't know his, heaven, or his earthly birthplace. They certainly don't know his heavenly origin. Verse 15, you people judge according to the flesh. Again, it's just another declaration of their ignorance. The fact that these sinful fallen men judge according to fallen earthly standards. They don't any, understand anything of him. They don't understand anything of his heavenly origin. They don't understand anything of him because uh, the, whatever kind of limited understanding they have is superficial. It's wrong because it's not grounded in the truth. You people judge according to the flesh. And then he goes on and he says, I don't judge anyone. I'm not judging anyone. Now, commentators are taking this in one or two paths. Either it means he doesn't judge according to the flesh, superficially and externally like the Pharisees are doing, or it means that he doesn't judge anybody yet. I'm not judging anyone. I'm not judging anybody yet. Because at this time, God the Father has sent him into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? He's come as the Messiah, not the conquering king and judge. In the future, he will come back and fulfill that role, the ultimate judge. You people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone, verse 16, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Again, he is the one who is co-equal with the Father. He's God the Son, God come in the flesh. His testimony is true because he has the same nature of the true and the living God. Verse 17, even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Verse 18, I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So if you wanted two witnesses, you got two witnesses right there, right? The Father and the Son, bearing witness to the truth of the deity of Christ. Again, something that he has done previously back in chapter 5 when he called on God the Father himself to validate his claims, to witness to the validity of his claims. Commentator Leon Morris says this, if Jesus really stands in the relationship to God in which he says he does, then no mere man is in the position to bear witness. No human witness can authenticate a divine relationship, right? That makes sense. But God the Father stands up and says, I'm going to give witness to the Son. Again, the Pharisees don't understand verse 19. And so they were saying to him, where is your father? Now, why did they say that? Well, perhaps they're, talk- they're thinking, again, purely on a human level. They're asking to see Joseph, who probably at this time was, was dead. Jesus answered and said, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Again, the Jewish religious leaders are supposed to be leading people to the truth. But they don't know the truth. They don't know the person of the truth. They don't know the truth. They don't know who that the father is in heaven. They have no idea. And, of course, they have no idea who is standing in their very presence when the Son of God himself stands in their midst because they're blinded by their own ignorance, blinded by their own sin, blinded by their own hatred of the truth, and blinded by their love of darkness. That's these religious leaders. Verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one sees him because his hour had not come. I told you that Jesus' life is on a divine timetable. Nothing is going to happen to him until the appropriate appointed time and the cross is still some six months down the road verse 21 he said therefore again to them he said therefore again to them i go away and you shall seek me and you shall die in your sin where i'm going you cannot come again these false religious leaders have no idea what he's talking about he just previously told the crowd that that he was going to go away he was going to be with them a little longer and then he was going to go away and where they he was going they couldn't follow him 
John 7, 33, Jesus says, For a little longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Right? So again, the one who's come from the Father is going back to the Father. The one who came down from heaven is going back to heaven. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Why? Because heaven's not for everyone. Heaven is not for everyone. Heaven is only for those who have repented of the sin and believed upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says to his enemies, to all unbelievers, very soon a day is going to come, you're going to anxiously search for me, seek for me, and you're going to weep bitterly because of your rejection for me, and then it's going to be too late. Because where I am, you can't come. You will not be able to find me. He said, verse 21, he said, therefore again to them, I go away, you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. He's going to repeat this in verse 24. You shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that, here it is, I am he, you shall die in your sin. Again, it's another, honestly, it's another demonstration of compassion and grace because it's another demonstration, it's another proclamation of warning. It's a tremendous warning for those who reject Christ, for those who reject the light of the world. There's a promise of eternal judgment to come. Wrath is coming. Remember I told you J.C. Rell says, hell is the truth known too late. It's a reality. Most people don't think of hell. I understand that. Most people reject hell. They reject the very concept. And nobody intentionally wants to go to hell. If it indeed is a true and a literal place, and the Bible repeatedly says that it is, but as I told you previously, hell's going to be full. Hell's going to be full of people who didn't need to be there. Hell is going to be full of sinners who have failed to repent and place their faith solely upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell's going to be full, and it's a place from which there's no hope ever of escaping, a place of endless agony, remorse, and anger because those there have been deceived. They've been deceived by their own sin, deceived by their own love for evil, and deceived by Satan himself. Heaven, on the other hand, it's going to be full. It's going to be full of sinners, but sinners who have repented. Sinners who have cried out to God for mercy through his Son, in whom he has promised to provide mercy and forgiveness of sin. And the conclusion of the story is it's that simple. It's literally that simple. Believe upon the truth of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's God's only substitute for the forgiveness of sin. Inherit eternal life freely as a gift of God's grace. Or reject that. And pay eternally for that error in a literal physical place of eternal conscious torment in a place called hell. That's why Jesus comes. He stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen.